When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Donna Coonan. Welcome to Our Shelves, Donna. I've been so looking forward to doing this episode with you. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> well, for those of you who aren't aware, Donna Coonan is the editorial director of the Virago Modern Classics, which she's run since 2005, in which time she's brought over 200 books to the list. She lives in southeast London and is the mother of two boys. So, Donna, let's talk about one of my absolutely favourite subjects ever, the Virago Modern Classics. Uh, this has to be one of the most beloved and most admired lists, I think, in all of British publishing, those iconic green spines. Lines, uh, have been a sign of the very best in women's writing since the list was first launched four decades ago, back in 1978. And I feel like I can name any handful of authors on the list and you get a sort of multiple who's who of the literary world, you know, Rosamund Lehman, Sylvia Townsend Warner, Zora Neale Hurston, Patricia Highsmith, Daphne du Maurier, uh, Gail Jones. I could just go on and on. I could probably spend the whole episode just listing these brilliant names. Um, but let's start then maybe with a little bit of a potted history about the imprint and why it's so important. Well, um, as you said, the list was set up in 1978 to celebrate women writers and to demonstrate the existence of a canon of women's writing. Um, and why I think the list is so important is because looking back to when these authors were first published, there are writers of the calibre of Willa Cather and Edith Wharton, who I, I, I kind of came to realise they were in copyright in the 70s and 80s when they were first published by Virago, which meant that no other publisher in the UK was publishing them. You know, these are writers who are acclaimed, who are studied, who are the best writers of their generation, and their work had been allowed to go out of print. So the first writer that that Carmen Callal chose to publish was Antonia White, mm. her book Frost in May. And this list had been brought together because of this inequality in writers and in voices, like 50% of the, this is the voice of 50% of the population. Mm. And yet over and over again, they'd been sidelined. And I don't know about you, when I, but when I went to university, the 
books that were studied as books that everybody had to read, there were very, very few women on it. Yeah. I think probably Virginia Woolf was the only woman. Yeah, the, always the standout. You put Virginia Woolf on a course and then you've covered women, right? <laughs> exactly. And some of these women were, you know, the groundbreakers and bestsellers of their time. Um, but they'd been allowed to go out of print, which um, makes no sense whatsoever. But it still happens today. That's why I still am able to add to the list every year. Writers who are incredible, but have been unfairly neglected. It's astonishing that there's such amazing names on this list, I think. Every time I look over at my sort of shelves of green spines that I've been collecting over the years, I'm always sort of slightly, I just marvel at the fact that you have got these astonishing names, the kind of the big names of of, of, uh, a sort of, you know, 20th century literary history. Um, It must have been a huge legacy for you to have taken on when you first got the job I mean were you daunted by the task or was it simply just such an exciting opportunity that you couldn't wait to get your hands on the list and start putting nude authors in it um both really um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know there, there, there are writers on the Virago list who I studied at who I studied um at school Mm. So to have these writers who I was then, you know, slightly contributing to their legacy was um, quite, it felt like quite a responsibility. But um, you can't let that weigh you down too much. And the more research you do, the more you find that there are more writers that you want to add to it. Mm. It is a huge honour to work on this list. And that's why I've stayed on it for so long. Um, I've been running the list since 2005. um, And it's... I don't know, the job of an editor is something that's so personal. It's, right. It kind of feels like you're putting into print the books that mean the most to you. Mm. And, you know, so the first writers that I acquired for the list were Muriel Spark and Barbara Pym. Um, and um, over the years, you know, I've I've acquired Patricia Highsmith. I've overseen pretty much all of Daphne du Maurier's works. Um, not all of them were out of print either. Like Daphne du Maurier, she's hugely popular, the best-selling writer on the list. Oh, wow. But something that people pro- might not realize so much is that when we acquired her, something that we were trying to do was to reassess her legacy. Mm. She'd been published with these awful watercolor paintings of you know women looking out to sea. And she'd been marketed as a as a writer of romantic fiction which is yeah. which is like none of her books are romances um there are most of her books are dark and brilliant and you know she wrote the birds and don't look now uh two horror masterpieces of the 20th century so you know it's not it, it's basically reassessing the legacy of lots of writers Hmm. And how do you go about picking what you want to add to the list? Because you said there that some, you know, you started out with Muriel Spark, Barbara Pym, these kind of some of your first your first acquisitions. Were they great favourites of yours, or were you just thinking they needed to be on the list? They were both writers who were uh, submitted to me by agents, okay. um, but that often doesn't happen. Um, there are some agencies who um, take brilliant control of their backlist authors. Uh, but an awful lot of the time I spend um, finding writers through looking at other things online, looking at reviews of one writer and another one will come up. And that just kind of leads you to branch out and go, oh, I wonder I, I wonder who this writer was. I wonder how important she was. I wonder what her writing is like. Um, and 
that's how you end up finding these gems and then you have to do the detective work of finding out who runs the estate um, and see if you can get them back into into publication again is there a particular um favorite you can say from the or not maybe a personal favorite but a particular favorite in terms of an addition a new addition to the list that you've put on it recently recently um gail jones i feel very proud of yeah. republishing her that was an astonishing kind of coup to get those books. And I mean, the fact that they were out of print in the first place, it seemed so uh, awful. But then you bought back, you bought back three, didn't you, in one go. And now you're publishing her new novel that's coming up this autumn. Yes. And of course, nobody expected a new novel from um, Gail Jones. Um, and I'm really hoping that, you know, there is as much excitement here as there is in the US of mm. having this great American writer who has not produced a book in over 20 years suddenly you know she she never she she stopped publishing but she never stopped writing yeah um so you know there's so much more to discover of of, of hers um a writer that i'm going to be publishing next year is um gloria naylor and she um was a contemporary of tony morrison and alice walker her most famous novel is um the women of brewster place which was um, televised and won the National Book Award in 1982, I think. Uh, but Mama Day is her masterpiece. It's just incredible. And um, all of her books are worthy of celebration and rediscovery. This is a writer who, once I'd looked into her, her works, I found out that although all they'd been published in the late 80s and early 90s, they haven't mm. been in print since in this, com in this country. Um, she's a writer of great caliber. She's incredible. The plots are so compelling that you have to force yourself to slow down to appreciate the skill and the beauty of her writing. Um, she's amazing. There's warmth and humor and brilliant female relationships, uh, but they tackle really harsh themes like racism, child neglect, um, uh, sexual abuse. Um, they tackle these issues head on, but yet they are page turners. They've got wide appeal. Um, and they're also really, really daring from like Linden Hills, which is based on Dante's Inferno. Mm. And it's uh, centered on a black community whose who's road to hell is following the white American dream um, to uh, Bailey's Cafe, which is set in a diner, an American diner. And you kind of think that what you're reading is set in reality. Um, and then you find out that that Bailey's Cafe is a sort of limbo that only appears to people when they need it. Um, and Mama Day, which is a retelling of um, The Tempest. So I'm really, really excited to publish this incredible writer. There's a real mix on the list because I, I think that what or what I admire that you manage to do with it is you bring in these authors um, like Gloria Naylor or uh, Gail Jones who have not been published in the UK before or haven't who have been out of print for a very long time and not been on your list before and you give them this kind of amazing position because I think a Virago modern classic just says like this is the book you need to read you know these are brilliant brilliant books by women but on the other hand you also are looking at your own backlist aren't you a lot of the time and yeah. bringing back stuff I'm really interested to know how you make the choice because I mean I look at you know the the list of what Virago modern classics have printed over the years and I just think every single one of them is just you know an incredible book so how do you go through that and think yes I want to bring back 
Dorothy West, for example, or I want to bring back E.H. Young. Like, what, what, what are you looking for when you're looking for one of those titles and thinking, I need to repurpose this for a new... Is it thinking about repurposing it for new readers? Yes, it is. Like, one of the first things that I did when I started the list was reissued Elizabeth Taylor's work. Um, mm. Elizabeth Taylor is one of my favourites on the list. I love her. Um, and she... Um, I, I, I knew that she was a favourite of lots of writers, um, and but I didn't feel that I don't know her covers were doing her justice, and I didn't really think that she had the champions that she really needed. So I commissioned new introductions by writers such as Hilary Mantel and um, Charlotte Mendelssohn and well David Bedil, um basically a. a a broad array of writers who think that she is the bee's niece. Um, and that really helped in establishing her as a writer that people needed to discover. Um, something I really love about her is that although she writes, you know, she's a white middle-class woman who is writing usually about white middle-class women. Something that I love about her writing is how beautifully she empathizes with, um, with, shop workers and children and not I don't think an awful lot of writers who were of her class and period were doing that quite often there's a snobbishness in books from you know the 40s that you kind of yeah know. um and I love her empathy and also her humor she's so funny she is surprisingly funny isn't she I find her I mean I think I'm exactly the audience for that I found Elizabeth Taylor via reading um, the wonderful collection of her short stories that you published and also that when you reissued all those novels and I wasn't aware of her at all before that so that's it. and today now she's a sort of stalwart of the Virago modern classics and I think it's safe to say that she has had a resurgence um, there's been such a huge interest in her work entirely because you kind of reprinted her and introduced her to a to a wholly new load of readers that must be so exciting when you see that coming into being that you know you can do this you get you commission the right introductions you repackage the books and then people read them and they read them like their front list titles right they kind of fall in love with them absolutely yeah um it's 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 wonderful when it works and you find exactly the right combination um yeah <laughs> and um of course it's a bit heartbreaking when the books don't do as well as you as you wish they would um and um who else Some, sometimes i think also you look at what's working well in um, in frontless fiction, and you mm. end up thinking, "Oh, maybe that would tie in well." So when I acquired uh, Patricia Highsmith, it wasn't long after um, Gillian Flynn had published *Gone Girl*, and oh, um, okay. you know, domestic psychological thrillers were yes. were the the, the the high selling books in in the fiction market. Um, and at the moment, I'm going to be reissuing Barbara Pym next year because she, she's just perfect comfort reading. There was an upsurge in her books, especially um, her e-books, because people were reading, you know, the bookshops were closed. Mm. People were reading on e-book. And I think it's exactly what people wanted to read. Comforting, observational humor, um, which, you know, but I think one of the reasons that I love Pym is because she... Um, she ends up you you end up thinking like how can this writer know what I'm thinking um she she just has some brilliant one-line descriptions that are almost like you're sharing a secret with her and they're yeah. funny and moving and describe loneliness really well 
I feel like you have probably what is the best list in publishing. And I say that as an unbiased, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but you know, when you start talking, just hearing you talk, and you know, I know all these, I know all these um, people are on your list, but you know, hearing you talk about them and reminding me what's so brilliant about particular authors, I just can't think of a better list to work on. I feel like you've got, you've got the best job out there, right? <laughs> but also, I don't know, but so I, I try to publish fairly widely. So, for example, something that the that the Varaga Modern Classics list has always sought to do is to challenge the interpretation of what a classic is. Mm. Um, so we publish Valley of the Dolls, for example. That is a cult classic. Yeah. People people would say, is that book really a classic? It might not be the best literature, but can you fi- can you think of a more era defining book that? Mm. And it was, you know, the greatest seller of its day at the time. It was a record breaking, best selling book. Um, and I would argue that it is a feminist book as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's also maybe what makes, I, I do think that's something that makes the list um, so wonderful as a reader as well, is in a sense you're never quite sure what's going to appear on it next, that you can have, you know, Edith Wharton alongside Valley of the Dolls, that's, you know, Jacqueline, Suzanne, it's just, you, you wouldn't normally expect that, right? And like you say, there's a reason every single, there's a reason that each and every one of those books is on there. It's obviously being considered and, and thought important and, you know, with valid reason. But you can read it and you're reading just the entire sort of the wealth of women's writing that's out there, I think. That's what Farago means to me. And I'm always discovering. I always feel like I kind of know the list and then I discover something else that I haven't yet read on it. So it just it's a list that keeps giving as well. I love it. It's also in looking at the classics, sometimes there are just reverberations with what's going on now. And mm. um, so, for example, when I published The Street uh, by Anne Petrie, um, she is... She's a writer who you have to, you almost have to keep looking at the first publication date to see when the book was published because there's this kind of eerie sense of presence where Mm -hmm. you're just like, how can this book have been written over 50 years ago? Yeah. Um, And we're, I'm I'm going to be publishing in the next couple of months her final um, adult novel called uh, The Narrows. And you, this feeling that you get that this book cannot have been written that long ago is is kind of incredible. Um, and it's for all sorts of reasons, not only because of the focus on Black Lives Matter, um, and this book is about an interracial romance, but also the insights that she gives you into media manipulation. She's, she's just this extraordinary writer. And once again, this is another book that has not been in print for years. It's astonishing to think about that. I love the idea that there's always... There's always brilliant books to be found. If you know where to look for them, if you can dig far enough, then you'll always find, you know, there's, there's always something out there to add to the list. Um, I'm conscious that I feel like you and I could talk about Rocky <laughs> Modern Classics all day. We could fill entire podcasts just uh, waxing lyrical about the brilliant books on there. But I want to get into um, some of our main questions. I think we've already talked a little bit about uh, one of the uh, or one of the authors you're going to talk about for this section. But tell me a little bit about the books that are currently on your bedside table or on the piles around your bedside table as yeah. I think you've got. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, domestic slut. Um, I my wardrobe is more of a floor drobe, and I don't have a bed stand. I just have a massive pile of books. Um, I so a lot of my a lot of my reading is also interspersed with reading for the children as well. 
So yeah. I've got lots of children's books. Um, I've got Gloria Naylor because I'm rereading her at the moment. And that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of appreciating the skill of her work because the first time I was reading it so quickly. Um, I've also got a lot of short stories, um, including by Simon Rich and Shirley Jackson. And the reason for this is that because um, during lockdown, when I had the children at home and I was working from home and homeschooling and work all came in together and I just didn't ever have any time or any headspace. Um, the one thing that I could read was short stories. So I I devoured lots of short stories um, and I had Shirley Jackson because she always makes me think and um, disturbs me a bit, but not in a way that... <laughs> not in a way that I couldn't cope with during lockdown yeah um and Simon Rich because he's so funny um I also had David Sedaris because you can dip in and out of it and um I discovered audiobooks for the first time because I just didn't have time to read so I could put them on while I was cooking and did you enjoy it do you like listening to audiobooks I find that people are very torn some people really don't like being read to in that way and other people just adore it I quite like it I used to hate it um I used to always find that readers didn't read fast enough and I didn't remember enough and um but actually I'm a complete convert now because you know I I just had so little time um mm. and um I didn't mind it it was great actually it feels like it kind of feels like a bit of a privilege to be read to right yes I suppose there is something nice about it it's a bit of a break from the usual right it's yes. it's a treat I suppose to have somebody else reading to you Absolutely. rather than doing the work yourself um, I'm very interested, though, by the fact that you've got these um, the Gloria Nailers by your bed, like you say, because so you're reading them presumably for a mixture of is this a mixture of sort of pleasure and work? Obviously, you're reacquainting yourself um, with them a little. To bit. be honest, I'm meant to be. I was meant to be flicking through them to do cover copy and um, <laughs> and to brief the covers, but actually, I just ended up. I've just ended up reading them again. So when I was reading it first time round, I was just reading as fast as I could yeah finding out who the US publisher was and just thinking these are books I really desperately want to publish um and second time around you're reading it more slowly and you're really savoring um you, you're, you're savoring the words that are on the page and yeah. um with Gloria Naylor it's it's made me even more determined that she finds a huge readership well, I must admit, I'm particularly um, excited about these because one of our guests on, I think, the first season of our shows, um, Aminati So, the co-author of Big Friendship, she picked Mama Day as one of her books, her best beloved books and the books she always recommended to friends. And I remember when we were recording the podcast, she was telling me all about it. And I kept thinking, God, I've never even, I don't think I'd even heard of Gloria Nader. I thought I must go away and read this book. And inevitably, I didn't get around to it. And now I know I can buy the Virago Modern Classic next year. And then <laughs> this will be finally mean that I can read Gloria Naylor so I'm particularly happy about this but isn't um, it incredible that this that, that these books which are just amazing just have not been published for so many years and they should be yeah yeah it's so wonderful um I just want to ask briefly what is your normal kind of division between reading for pleasure and reading for work do you see any division between them or do you find yourself um, always having books by your bed that you know you should be reading for work or you need to read for work, but obviously you're enjoying them as well. I mean, do you make that distinction? 
I don't make a great deal of distinction now. I think that's one of the reasons I love publishing the Virago Modern Classics so much. And it's because the books that I'm publishing are books that I would choose to read. Yes. In my spare time, if I had any spare time. (laughs) (laughs) If you weren't publishing, you'd be buying them and reading them yourself anyway. So yeah, that's the kind of best combination, I think, of an editor in their list when it's a pure sort of labour of love from every in every shape and form basically next up donna i think you're going to tell me about a particular series that made you think recently okay so early in lockdown i started watching a um a comedy series um and it's it's called better things and um as i was watching it it's very funny and it's about a woman in la and her um, young daughters who range from I don't know nine to eighteen, and um, you also have her mother. And I was watching this program, thinking this is great TV. And I was also thinking, why is this different? <laughs> and it suddenly occurred to me that this is one of the first things I've seen where you have a middle-aged woman who is the protagonist. And, you know, if you're thinking about dramas with middle-aged men, it's it's basically <laughs> ubiquitous. You yeah, have, how long have you got? <laughs> you know, exactly. So so it's never commented on that they're middle-aged. You have like Tony Soprano, you have Walter White, you have the Kaminsky Method. Um, so basically just seeing a, a woman who is a mother and a daughter and um, who has a career at the centre of this programme um, who is talking about talking with her friends freely about menopause was just kind of like a little jolt for me. And I've always I've always known and we've always spoken about how you get women's stories in fiction and film and TV. And it begins with like the quest for self and coming of age. And then the main story is the woman looking for love and you know there's Bridget Jones there's sex in the city and you get that part of her life and then you get early motherhood and then women are on the peripheries they are never the protagonist anymore they are suddenly grandmothers and their their part in the story is tiny it's minuscule and um, you know as Caitlin Moran said in her latest biography middle-aged women rule the world and you just end up seeing that there's so much dramatic potential that is lost by not having a woman at this age at the center of the story, because often she will have children, she will have uh, parents. Um, so therefore, you also get a whole plethora of actors around her who mm. are who are amazing characters and have and have you know this opportunity for drama and stories. Um, and in Better Things, that's played by Celia Imrie, who is her mother, and she's cantankerous and fabulous and funny. Um, so you're also having, you know, uh, older female actresses who are, you know, playing incredible parts. Um, and then um, after the, after Better Things, I also watched The Mayor of Easttown and then The Chair. And I'm just feeling that it is fantastic that women of that are 40 plus 45 plus are having a voice on tv um 
And I wondered where this was happening in fiction. Um, and I was sent a novel uh, by an American writer called Dana Spielter. And this is why this book spoke to me so much. It's unapologetically and defiantly a novel of of middle age. And it's a woman who has a very safe life. Um, she's perimenopausal. She um, is married to a wealthy man. She has an honor student daughter. Um, she has a beautiful suburban architect designed house. And then one day she decides to buy this arts and crafts cottage on the wrong side of Syracuse. And it comes as a surprise to everybody and perhaps most of all herself that she decides to walk out on her life. And, wow. you know, the the story of the male middle age crisis is it, it's so common, but you don't mm. really get this. You don't really get this of women. And this novel starts as it seems to be a comic, straightforward midlife crisis novel, but it becomes so much more than that. And partly this is because of who she is, um, a middle-aged woman. Um, it becomes a profound meditation on mortality, on feminism, on agency, on the aging female body, on the changing relationships between uh, mothers and daughters. Um, and it's also like this woman is recognizing at this stage of, in her life, her rage and mm. her agency in an era of Trump. And it's such a startlingly good book. And this is, so, so this is what has been on my mind a lot this year, middle-aged women. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right though. There does seem to be suddenly a sort of influx of these stories as if somebody in Hollywood or whatever has suddenly has taken notice of that idea that you just vocalize that actually, if you choose this part of, a woman's life it's incredibly rich often much more rich than you know looking at them when they're looking for love or when they're younger and try to find themselves like this is where there's real meat on the bones isn't there, the story um I'm also particularly excited that you are so you are publishing this book by Dana Spiotta Lexia aren't you wayward yeah in January yeah I'm really excited about that because I haven't read it yet but I have read I think I read her last novel and loved it but she doesn't seem to be particularly she doesn't seem to be quite so well known over here than she is in America I think so this is great no this book's had amazing reviews from like George Saunders and Jenny Offhill and Ian Lee but she's not very well known here at all and she should be because she's such an incredible writer yeah she's She's a brilliant writer and it's such a and I think it's such a rich subject for her to to her to work on in, in one sense it's actually almost unfair that you're telling us about it now because we've got to wait a few more months to read the book but <laughs> well we're publishing it in ebook next month <laughs> oh there you go everyone we can all get the ebook and read it furiously I'll uh, I'll definitely be one of those people it sounds brilliant right our shells be back in just a moment Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Our Shells. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Donna Coonan about female rage and how many wonderfully rich stories they are if you pick middle-aged female protagonists. Next up, Donna, could you tell me about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way? Yes. So um, I am going to choose the first book that really made me think of feminism at all, um, which was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which was one of our A-level texts. And um, so I became a teenager in the late 80s, early 90s. And throughout my entire life, we'd had um, a female prime minister. Um, Madonna was the biggest star of the day. And um, I'd never... I'd never been told that feminism means equality. I naively thought that women already had that. Um, feminism was a word that was, as I was a teenager, it was sneered at, and it was certainly not something that me or my contemporaries would have had anything, wanted anything to do with. It felt like feminism was a thing of the past and associated with hairy armpits and bra burners and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, it wasn't a good time, the late 80s. Early 90s. Did you associate it, I'm intrigued, did you associate it with a sort of older generation of women, like your mothers or something like that? Was there a sense of wanting to distinguish yourself between older women that you saw in your lives? Not even my mother, I guess. But yes, older older women and something that was kind of obsolete. So I'm, tra- I'm talking as a feminist now, and I'm being as honest as I can about oh. how I viewed feminism as a as a early teenager. It wasn't just me. It was I went to a girls' school, um, and um, it was all of us. Um, and then the Handmaid's Tale was chosen as uh, one of our A-level texts. It wasn't my favourite text. Um, I loved Milton's sonnets, and they were my favourite. But this was a book that stood me in my tracks and made me realise how important feminism is. Um, so this is a book that seared the necessity of feminism on a 15 year old Catholic girl, because it felt as if, it felt as if Gilead had been made just for me, um, because of how I'd been brought up as a Catholic and, um, because of where I was in my life, I was compelled and terrified by this book. Um, especially when we learnt about the historical precedents and the contemporary parallels there were that Atwood drew on for this book. I think she said somewhere that none of this book is fiction. It's all Mm. happened or is happening. Um, And, you know, it looks back to the Old Testament and forward to the rise of evangelical right-wing Christianity. Um, So this book was something which just made me think again and made me realize the importance of feminism and how a government can revoke women's assets, restrict their dress and movement, limit their education, enforce reproduction. Um, and, you know, this is something that's still terrifying now. Look at mm. the Texas and the, the, the new abortion laws. It's, it's completely, completely, it was, com- it was a complete revelation to me. Did you find that reading it made you, did it turn, I mean, did it turn you into a feminist? As in, were you able to claim feminism as something that meant something very personal to you afterwards? Not just from this book, but from lots of the things I guess I was discovering at the time. 
we had a, a nun who was the head of our school. Right. And she gave an assembly basically talking about, do you believe in equality? Do you believe that you should be paid the same as a man would if you're doing the same job as him? Do you believe in women's rights? And do you believe a woman should be able to choose who she marries um, and if she marries and what job she does and what is expected of her? If you believe in this, this is equality and this is feminism. So, yes, I was taught that by a nun. But, yeah, the, uh, and then, you know, other things that I've read, such as A Room of One's Own, um, it, it was it was an awful lot of, it, it was kind of like a drip feed. But mm. this was the book that I remember almost scaring me into feminism. Wow. Is it the, do you, remember, you remember it as the sort of gateway then as well, yes. the kind of thing that opened up that... Um, it's, I find it so astonishing that something like The Handmaid's Tale, um, it, I mean, it makes sense that it has these resonances, but it's really fascinating that I think even today, young women are still who are still discovering it for the first time seem to have often sort of similar experiences with it. With it. It's a book that really has stood the test of time in a, in a really amazing way, right? Yeah, and I, wasn't it, I think it was first published when Reagan was in power, and mm. now it's you know been filmed and the sequel has come out during Trump being in power so I think there's probably something to be said to that as well yeah and Atwood is um or has been various points of Virago author hasn't she so how I mean again going back to maybe some of the discussion we had at the beginning of this episode like for have the the book this particular novel meaning so much to you and then coming to work at Virago later that must be a kind of incredible experience for you right yes yes one of the things that I did when I first started working at Virago was um I had a copy of The Handmaid's Tale signed for my old English teacher and sent it to her oh wow but but because of the school I went to you know an awful lot of the texts that we had were Virago titles um the fat black women's poems by Grace Nichols um I know where the cage bird sings, the handmaid's tale. I, I kind of went from my A level, from my GCSEs and my A levels at a girls' school where lots of texts by women were chosen uh, to university where hardly any were. <laughs> so it must have felt so strange if you're used to reading women, because I feel like a lot. I speak to a lot of women who say that you know they didn't. They just in studying literature, they just read men for so many years. And then it was only when they were able to read their own text, you know, with a bit more freedom, they started to discover women. But that's an odd experience to be studying women at school and then to go to university and find that it's much more male dominated. It certainly felt like a step back. Yes. And I know with what what I read with my children, I generally choose books that are either written by women or have female protagonists. Right. Um, Because I think it's really important. Um, my son was telling me last year how this class had been given the choice of three titles, all of who, all of which had the word boy in, um, and they all they all <laughs> were either written by men or had male protagonists. And you know, mm. fiction is one of those incredible doors in which you can imagine yourself to be anybody or anything. So if you, a boy can read a book and imagine himself to be a rabbit then why can't he imagine himself to be a a girl yeah of course and what do you think teenage donna 
who was reading The Handmaid's Tale now would make if you make the fact that you are now in charge of the Virago modern classics, that this is your list. If you could go back in time and sort of say that's what you'll be doing in years, <laughs> what do you what do you think she'd say? Um, I don't think I'd quite be able to believe it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's from somebody who suffers a bit from imposter syndrome anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, I'd find it very difficult to believe. Um, were you always a keen reader as a teenager? Were you one of those bookish types that many of us were? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wasn't Slightly. very popular, so I was hugely bookish. <laughs> but I'm not from a very bookish family. So I guess I went from reading children's books to reading Stephen King and Virginia mm. Andrews when I was in my late primary school years, early secondary school years. So um, the things that I devoured were kind of by chance rather than design. I'm also curious in that, you know, you say that knowing it's been thinking in particular, knowing that your, you say your school had a lot of Virago titles on its, on its kind of reading list. And so you were relatively well-versed in, in, in them at that stage. Does that make you more aware that the kind of titles you're putting out today are, have the potential at least to reintroduce a whole new generation of younger readers to feminism, to great women's writing? That is what I hope. <laughs> I am reissuing a lot of books. I also I also publish a children's list as well on the Virago Modern Classic. Yeah, of course. And that's been very much yours, hasn't it? That wasn't in existence before you were there. It has. It began when I acquired uh, Rumor Godden's books and um, I was asked if we would think about publishing her children's books too and I jumped mm. at the chance. Um, so, yes... One of the things that I do really try to do with my covers and with who I choose to be the introducers is to reach the widest possible audience for the books. Um, it's really important for the books not to feel like fusty old books that you can only read if you have a university degree, when yeah. that couldn't be further from the truth. Most of these are 20th century books. They're accessible. Um so, yeah, it is, it is something that I think about quite a lot. And finally, uh, Donna, if I may, could you tell me about a woman or a person of unrepresented gender whom you admire? Okay, well, the, um, I chose a woman for my pedestal who I only found out about this year. Mm. Um, so, I don't know, the, 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 you've had so many amazing women who have been chosen on this podcast that I wanted to choose somebody who, um, somebody who was new to me. I didn't want to choose somebody for their talents. I wanted mm. to choose an every woman. Okay. And my son talking to his grandmother recently about Churchill um, ended up educating her about why he wasn't such a great man um, <laughs> and talking about the Bengal famine. Um, so we, I, I started thinking who should we teach and celebrate as heroes? And I have chosen Ruth Coker Burks because she's not a prime minister or a world leader. She's an every woman whose acts of kindness led to really great things. And this is something that we can all aspire to. Um, I discovered her after watching Russell T Davies' um, series, It's a Sin, earlier this year. Mm. And this is a woman who was a young single mother in her 20s. 
she'd been ostracized by her community because um, she comes from a Christian background and um, she was a divorcee. And um, in 1986, she went to a hospital where she was visiting a friend and there was a room with um, where the door was covered in tarpaulin and there was a biohazard sign and outside it were three nurses drawing straws to go in there. Um, and Ruth was curious about this and went in and there she found a skeletal young man asking for his mother and it was obvious that he was dying. And so she asked the nurses for for her, for this man's mother's uh, number and called the woman and said, your son is dying. Will you visit him? And the woman said, no, my son is dead. He's been he's been dead to me since he was gay. Um, Ruth went back into this room and she held this man's hand and she comforted him throughout his final hours. And then she was told that she was responsible for his body. And she spent hours phoning different care homes, different um, funeral homes to see who would take him. And none of them would. Um, eventually, she got through to a funeral home who uh, would cremate him after hours. And she took his ashes, which she put in a cookie jar, and she buried them in her family plot. And soon after this, she was contacted by other hospitals and then eventually by other gay men who were suffering with AIDS. And something I find amazing about her is that she is an ally who worked with gay men and in, she worked with a community that she didn't know to help them. She ended up um, working for years pretty tirelessly, um, raising money. She um, nursed people in their final days. Um, and she she ended up um, running a pharmacy for antiretroviral drugs from her, from her house. And she did all of this as a divorced single woman who had been, um, who, who was, you know, an outlier herself. Um, and she put herself on the line. She ended up having the Ku Klux Klan burning, burning crosses on her lawn. But what she was most scared about was her, her daughter being taken away from her. Mm. And in becoming an ally to this community, she ended up finding a kind of chosen family for herself as well. But these are people who I really think should be celebrated. They're people who you might not know about. Um, I think more people will end up knowing about Ruth Coker uh, Burks because I think they're doing a film about her. Um, yeah, and her memoir was published earlier this year, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, which I, ha I haven't read yet. I've only read articles about her. Yeah, but... All the Young Men. Yes. Have you read it yet? I haven't yet, but I remember reading, um, I think again, like you, watching It's a Sin earlier this year, um, reading uh, about this in the newspapers, uh, it definitely made me want to find out more about her. And she does sound astonishing because there was, it sounds like such an uphill struggle and she had no, I, I think I've, I've heard a lot of stories about women who have done similar things to her, but a lot of them started it because they had a family member or a loved one of their own who was sick. What I think was very astonishing about her story was that she didn't have any prior connection to these men, right? Exactly, yes. Um... And and you know, doing all of the doing all of this, knowing that you're going to be even more ostracised than you already are, and yeah. possibly have your child taken away from you, takes a great deal of courage. But I think it was this act of kindness that ended up giving her this courage. 
Um, yeah, I think she's an amazing person, but I also wanted to celebrate her because she is a normal person. She's not a statesman. She's <laughs> That's perfect. I like that. She's not someone who people are going to put up statues to. She's not a name that every a household name but she is a true kind of heroine who walked among us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Donna, I think that was a beautiful choice, a wonderful, and you talked about her very eloquently. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've very much enjoyed our chat, and I am delighted to hear about all these wonderful Brago Modern classics that are coming down the line, and I can't wait to read them next year. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Donna Coonan, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.